Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praises in the assembly of faithful, by the faithful. O Israel, rejoice in your maker. O people of Jerusalem, exult in your king. Praise his name with dancing, accompanied by tambourine and harp. For the Lord delights his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let the faithful rejoice that he honors them. Let them sing for joy as they lie on their beds. God's high and holy praises fill their mouths, for their shouted praises are their weapons of war. These warring weapons will bring vengeance on every opposing force and every resistant power. To to bind kings with chains and rulers with iron shackles and ex- execute the judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So today, we are going to be getting a little bit into the weeds of the what and the why of worship. We gather every Sunday, most of us, to do these things together, right? Singing, praying, um, we might partake of communion, scripture reading, sometimes without really remembering or paying attention to why or to what we're doing when we do these things. We're going to take the time today to explain each element of our worship service as we approach it and hopefully give a little bit of a fuller understanding um, to what it is that we do, why we do what we do when we gather together. So we call this a worship service. Worship isn't just singing, right? I think we all kind of know that. It really, it's really anything that ascribes worth to God. That's where the word worship comes from. Today, when I use the word worship, I'm going to be referring to anything that we do here together in this gathered space, even though worship goes well beyond that into the way that we live our lives. And today, I'm going to be focusing on the idea that worship can be an act of protest. And you might have heard me refer to that before in teaching about worship. It is only one aspect or approach of how we worship, but it's often an overlooked aspect. What do I mean by protest? Well, to protest is to stand against something that you view as wrong and to stand for something that you believe is right. One reason why I believe that God calls us into this regular weekly rhythm of worship, of of protesting, is to reorient us to his kingdom ways, which are often not the ways of the world, right? God's kingdom ways are counter to the culture and the world that we live in. So, for example, when we declared together in our call to worship this morning, if you were here for that, we said, the Lord is king. That's another way of saying We serve God. We don't serve ourselves. We don't serve country or money or work. God is in charge. We are not, right? We're protesting that the culture might tell us otherwise. 
Even when we did the passing of the peace, welcoming one another into this space, you might not see that necessarily as this charging act of protest. But what we're saying in that moment is, I'm not an individual. We belong in God's family. I consider you my brother, my sister, which means your cares, your concerns become mine, which is counter to the culture that we live in that says, me, 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 my needs first, I put myself first, right? Singing has long been one of the forms, one of the main mediums that we use in protest, okay? Historically, singing has always been this kind of medium. Every great movement has its own protest songs. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Remember? From the civil rights protests of the 60s, that was kind of their protest song that became loudly known. A more current-day protest is going on right now in Hong Kong, It's been going on for many months. The people there have been protesting for political rights and for freedoms. These protests sadly turned violent over the summer. And then I saw this fascinating news article a couple weeks ago about a new protest song that emerged from these protest rallies. And we're going to watch together a two-minute news clip that I found. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this, what you're going to see. Specifically, notice where they are singing these songs, okay? And I want, see if you can catch some of the words that they're singing. You'll be able to read them on the screen or you might hear them. Catch some of the words that they're singing. And then also, pay attention to what they do with their bodies as they sing. Okay, let's watch this clip together. Didn't that look really similar to some of the things that we see here in worship at the end there when they were raising their hands in solidarity or kind of like you do when you declare an oath? And they're weeping as they sing because of the hope of the picture that's being painted by the words that they're singing, right? Here's the thing. That song is largely aspirational. It's an audacious, hope-filled picture-painting exercise. They sang, Dawn is breaking on Hong Kong. Dawn is not yet breaking on Hong Kong, but that is their dream, So similarly for us, when we sing things like, death is defeated. Jake, do you have these cues? Some words that we sing from songs. Or right, we might sing, you restore every heart that is broken. That's actually not the current experience for a broken-hearted person, right? But that's their hope. Or we might sing, death is defeated. Imagine singing that the day after someone dies, which is what we did here, what was that, three weeks ago? Or it is well with my soul, right? That is, that's not always the truth. My soul does not always feel well, especially on a Sunday morning, because it's so early for me. That's a declaration, a proclamation to the soul of the way things should be. I surrender all. Really? All? Really? I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. Or even all our hope is in you. Is that true? Are these things fully true now, or are they more like a declaration of our mouths of where we want our hearts to be? I want to take us back to see this idea of protesting worship in Scripture, okay? I want you to turn in your Bibles, and kids, you can join me with this as well. There's a blue Bible underneath your chair. You want to turn to page 372. We're in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 20. And in this passage, 
King Jehoshaphat has been warned that three nations, a vast army, it says, is gathering to wage war on him. So imagine this scene. It's like something from, you know, End Games or Lord of the Rings, right? There's pictures of these vast armies that are mounting. You know that scene in Lord of the Rings where they're looking out, they're on the castle walls, and they're waiting. They know an army is coming, and they actually start to feel it and to hear it before they even see it, right? They hear this thumping. They feel the ground starting to shake, and then they start to see this army coming towards them, these warriors. And every time you think that that line can't get any longer or there can't be any more lines coming, there's another line coming. And the army just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So King Jehoshaphat is aware that this vast army is gathering to wage war on him. So he does the only thing that he knows how. He turns his eyes to God and he says, help, right? Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, Lord, worshiping the Lord. And then some Levites from the Korathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Now hang on a minute. If you knew that this vast army was approaching and you'd been told they're going to be here this time tomorrow... Wouldn't you spend all of today sharpening your sword and, like, getting the biggest shield you could possibly find to hide behind, making sure you have a helmet that fits securely on your head, right? Getting ready and preparing for war. Well, here's the interesting thing. They were sharpening their swords because it turns out in this passage that worship was going to be their primary weapon. Look at verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. So Jehoshaphat sends some men to the front of the army. Did he send his fiercest warriors, his best archers, his most intimidating-looking soldiers? Nope. He sent his singers. Now, between you and me, and I happen to have some experience in this area. Musicians aren't typically known for their biceps or their ripped abs, right? Skinny jeans, yes. Floppy, artsy hair, yes. They might have the coolest fedora in the room, but they're not usually known for their swordsmanship. And did these singers who are leading the front of the army, did they sing this defiant song of warfare about how their army's the strongest and you guys better run for it? Our God's bigger than your God. You guys are weak sauce. We will not be overcome. You better tremble in your boots. Is that what they're singing? Nope. Verse 21. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That's a sweet song, and I'm sure they were very, very timid when they sang it because they're trembling in their own boots, right? What on earth? But look. As they praised, the Lord intervened and brought such confusion that the opposing army turned around and slaughtered each other. Look at verse 22. When they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Give thanks to the Lord. 
For his steadfast love endures forever. They're probably singing it a bit more boldly now that they see that going on, right? And the song in this case, the protest that they're singing, wasn't even directly related to the situation at hand. They weren't singing, God, this warfare is wrong or unjust. Bring your justice to rain down on the enemy. They just sang what they knew to be true of God. He's a God of love. He's worthy to be praised. His love is never-ending. And then look what they did after the war was over. Look at verse 28 on page 373. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. They came back and worshipped again. And that is the rhythm of our weekly worship, right? We turn our eyes to God on a Sunday and we say, this is not the way things are meant to be. Please, God, will you intervene in this broken relationship, this sickness that I have, my struggles at school. Let your kingdom come here and here and there. And sometimes the next week we do return with singing and rejoicing because God has intervened. He's heard and responded to our prayer. So the role of the carefully chosen words that we use in worship is to have us keep on declaring what is true of God and his heart for our world and to protest what is not true and the things that are wrong in the world. So I want to invite you this morning to pay attention to how each element that we go through in our service, each element is going to we, is counter-cultural in some way, or it's a declaration of truth or a protest. You look at your order of service that you were given as you came in. In a moment, we're going to take some time to name our sin and confess in prayer. Let's think about how that might be counter to the culture or a protest. Then we'll take communion together. Then we'll sing. Then we'll declare a creed. We'll bring our offerings. All of these are ways of being counter to the culture, right? Of protesting what is wrong and of declaring what is right and true and what is of God. So right now... We're going to engage in a moment of quiet and confession. And confession, I will admit, isn't something that we do very frequently in this place, but it is a key way in which we declare that we don't live by our own authority and standards, right? We're submitted to someone else. It's counter to the culture to take time to be aware of the ways that we've wronged others or wronged God and to actually repent of those things. It's also countercultural to admit that we can't fix or save ourselves, but because we know God to be a God of enduring love, we can come without fear and name, protest even, the ways in which we fail, and also say, this isn't who I want to be. Help me to be something. Help me to be someone different. So I'm going to invite you to take one minute of silence here. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit point out any ways, this is also for kids too, any ways that we might have stepped outside of God's will or God's kingdom ways this week. Are the things that we did that are in contrast to who we know ourselves to be as God's saved and beloved children? Are there things that we should have done that we didn't do because it was a harder way? Let's take a minute to reflect. I'm going to name some of those things to God in the safety of his loving presence, and then I will lead us in a corporate prayer together.